Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 41, Genesis chapter 48, part 2. Well, the last time we meant, meant, met, the last time we met, I spent a lot of time trying to establish just what Paul meant when he spoke of a true Israelite or Jew. And that I have decided to describe that true Israelite as a spiritual Israelite. And this has everything in the world to do with the study that we embarked on last week of Genesis chapter 48. We're going to look at a few other scriptures this week um, and, the, and next week that will kind of help put this together. So when Paul speaks of this true Israelite as a spiritual Israelite, it's that one who has the spirit of the living God in him and who by means of faith in the Jewish Messiah Yeshua now embodies these ideals of Israel which are expressed primarily in Torah you are now a spiritual Israelite okay. now these ideals remember we talked about that at one time they really originally only existed in heaven Right, and were essentially contained in an attribute or an essence of God who is called the Word. Or in Hebrew, Memra. Or in Greek, Logos. And these heavenly ideals were eventually introduced to men in physical form at Mount Sinai and given to Moses as, if you would, the constitution of Israel. Okay? What we call the law or the Torah. Okay? Later, the word himself would don flesh and blood and visit us in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what has all this got to do with Genesis 48? Well, we're closing in on that. Recall that the central theme of Genesis 48 is this cross-handed blessing of the last patriarch, Jacob, called Israel. And this was upon this cross-handed blessing was upon Joseph's two Egyptian-born sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the effect of this blessing upon Joseph's two sons was that those two sons of Joseph were adopted by their grandfather, Jacob, and placed on par with Jacob's 12 sons. Okay. Those sons, by the way, who today we call the 12 tribes of Israel. Now further, Jacob, called Israel, blessed the two boys with an with a especially important blessing upon Ephraim who was the younger of the two and that blessing indicated that Ephraim was in some undisclosed manner going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world which by the way biblically means Gentile nations okay let's recall that at this point in history and in scripture that God saw the world as being composed of two basic groups of people Israel and the nations right? or in another way of saying it Israel and Gentiles so let's move on now with our study and I want you to, want to do that by having you go to Numbers chapter 34 open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 34 We're going to read from verses 13 through 28. Numbers chapter 34, 13 through 28. Follow along with me, please. Moshe, Moses, 
gave this order to the people of Israel. This is the land in which you will receive your inheritances by lot, which Adonai has ordered to give to the nine tribes and the half-tribe. The tribe of the descendants of Reuben have already received their land for inheritance according to their clans, and so have the descendants of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These two and a half tribes have already received their inheritance on this side of the Yarden, the Jordan, across from Jericho and eastward towards the sunrise. Adonai said to Moses, these are the names of the men who will now take possession of the land for you. Eleazar the priest and Yahshua the son of Nun also appoint one leader from each tribe to take possession of the land. The names of these men are from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Yephunneh, from the, tri from the tribe of the descendants of Shimon, Shmuel the son of Amahud, from the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad the son of Kislon, from the tribe of the descendants of Dan, a leader, Buhi the son of Yogli, from the descendants of Yosef, Joseph, from the tribe of the descendants of Manasseh, a leader, Haniel, the son of Ephod, from the tribe of the descendants of Ephraim, a leader, Kamuel, the son of Shiftan, and from the tribe of the descendants of Zebulun, a leader, Elisphan, the son of Parnach, and the tribe of the descendants of Issachar, a leader, Paltiel, the son of Azan, and from the tribe of the descendants of Asher, a leader, Ahihud, the son of Shlomi, and from the tribe of the descendants of Naphtali, a leader, Padahel, the son of Amahud. These are the ones who Adonai ordered to divide the inheritance among the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. Here's the context of this passage. Okay? After four centuries in Egypt, the Israelites are free and being led by Moses. Okay. They had approached the promised land some years earlier, but when spies or scouts were sent out to reconnoiter the land of Canaan, the majority of them said that although the promised land was just as wonderful as God said it was, the inhabitants were too many, they were too fierce, too powerful for the Israelites to conquer. So due to this lack of faith, and what was essentially a rebellious attitude, God drove those three million Israelites back into the desert wilderness to wander for 38 more years. So now we fast forward. Forty years have passed since Israel left Egypt, and with the extremely elderly Moses still leading, at God's direction, the Hebrew tribes are again ready to move upon Canaan and take the land. The time at which God gives the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has arrived. Up until this time, God has always spoken about giving the land to the Hebrews in the future tense. I will give it to you. But a lot of things had to happen first. Now the time has come and he gives it to them. Look at Numbers 34.1. It says, Adonai told Moses to give this order to the people of Israel. When you enter the land of Canaan, it will become your land. To pass on as an inheritance the land of Canaan as defined by these borders. Okay? That is, the answer to the question, when will the land become the property of Abraham's descendants has been answered. It occurs the moment this enormous throng of Israelites crosses over the Jordan, sets foot on the land of Canaan and claims it. And that moment in history, Canaan became the property of the Israelites in God's eyes and it was to remain so forever. Now let me pause for a moment 
to let that sink in and to make a point. Okay. As we are believers of the God of Israel, we have a decision to make. We, the church. Do we believe his word or not? If we do, then right here in Numbers, we understand that from the only viewpoint that really matters, Jehovah's, that land in the Middle East, which so many of us recently visited, that is today called Israel, was transferred to all those folks Moses was leading, and it would remain so in perpetuity. If anyone asks you, ever, where it says that the promised land was actually given to Israel, when ownership and possession was actually transferred, it's right here in Numbers 34, verse 1. Even more, do you ever once see in Scripture the issue raised as regards Canaan of who was there first or what is fair from a man's point of view as a factor into who owns the land? Or do we ever find God directing Israel to take whatever action avoids war and brings peace being raised in the scriptures concerning the land of Canaan? None of these issues have any bearing whatsoever upon God giving that land to Israel as a permanent possession. Okay. Therefore, as we can see by the various books and articles and debates about Israel, whether it belongs to the Jews, whether parts of it should be given to the Palestinians out of somebody's sense of fairness, whether it just makes sense for Israel to have less land for their people in exchange for peace, that in the end, none of this should matter one whit for a believer in the God of Israel. The one and only issue that overrides all others is this. Did God give the land to Israel or not? Okay, And the question's answered right here in Numbers 34. Not only did he give it to them, but it's recorded that they took possession of it around 1300 BC. Now hear me. Don't ever fall into the trap of debating someone on the issue of Israel's legitimacy on the basis of its historical or modern-day geopolitical realities. Because you know what? From that standpoint, which is, by the way, by definition, merely men's various points of view of their ideas of morality and fairness, there are indeed many reasonable-sounding arguments as to whether Israel ought to have all that land or not. God is not the least bit impressed by these arguments. Okay? What matters is that God declared that land to belong to his people, Israel, and that is that. In fact, the Genesis 15 warning to all mankind that whoever curses Abraham's Hebrew descendants will themselves be cursed, and whoever blesses them will be blessed, revolves around only two matters. The land of Israel and the people of Israel. Not one or the other, but both. Do you stand with the Israelites as the apple of God's eye, or do you see them as the source of many of the world's problems as, and as rejected and replaced? Do you stand with the land of Israel as belonging exclusively to the Israelites without compromise? Or do you see this simply as a matter of international political intrigue, strategic borders, obtaining oil, and making nice with the Muslims so they don't keep blowing us up? Let's look a little more at Numbers 34. There's a point of reference Numbers 34, <coughs> excuse me, occurs about 450 years after the happenings of Genesis 48. So between Jacob giving this cross-handed blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh 
And the dividing up of the land that we're reading about in Numbers 34, almost five centuries have elapsed. The gist of what we read in Numbers 34, 13 through 28 is this, following. Two of the tribes of Israel and a part of another, that's what it means by the half tribe of Manasseh, it means half of that tribe, okay, made a decision not to enter Canaan, but, in just, but instead to make their homes on the east side of the Jordan River. So here we see Manasseh, we see Gad, and we see Reuben. But notice this is only half the tribe of Manasseh. The other half settled here in the promised land on the western side of the Jordan. Now, remember Reuben was Jacob's actual biological firstborn son. But Reuben got passed over for the firstborn inheritance. And Gad was another that was passed over. And, of course, we have Manasseh, who was part of that blessing, who was one of Joseph's two Egyptian-born sons. Now, the remaining nine tribes, of which Ephraim is one, plus the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, that decided it wanted to go on into the Promised Land, were going to be given territories inside the land of Canaan. Now, just to remind us, nine and a half tribes plus two and a half tribes equals 12. But in fact, there were 13 named tribes, weren't there? What happened to that 13th tribe? As we look at the list of tribes in Numbers 34, we see that as was ordained 450 years earlier, in the cross-handed blessing of Genesis 48, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh replaced the tribe of Joseph. So we don't see Joseph represented exactly in this listing of Numbers 34. We don't see the tribe of Joseph, but we do see in its place the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. There's another important name missing in this tribal listing. Levi, or as we Gentiles say, Levi. Moses' own tribe, the priestly tribe, the tribe of Aaron, Moses' brother, the first high priest of Israel, Levi isn't mentioned as among tribes. Why? Well, let's read now Numbers 35, 1 through 5. Remember, I caution you, okay, these chapter and verse marks that we depend on are simply modern additions to the Bible, put there for the purpose of making it more convenient to find and reference certain scriptures. Okay? When this scripture was originally written, it all ran together. Okay? It didn't start and stop in sections and in chapters. Okay. Modern scholars, using their best efforts, decided where to say one chapter, verse ended, and the next began. Okay. So we need to read Numbers 35, 1 through 5, as though it was just attached to and a continuation of Numbers 34, which is what it is. Okay. It all regards the same subject, which is the dividing of the land, into separate territories for the tribes of Israel. So let's read now the continuation of chapter 34, which we call chapter 35, verses 1 through 5. It starts like this. In the plains of Moab, Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, Adonai said to Moses, order the people of Israel to give the Levites cities to live in from the heritage they will possess. And you are also to give the Levites some of the open land surrounding these cities. They are to have the cities to live in, while their open land will be for their livestock, for growing crops, and for all their animals. 
The open land around the cities you give to the Levites is to commence at a line drawn around the city wall 1,500 feet outside of it and to extend outward from there. Measure 3,000 feet outward from the city wall to the east, south, west, and north with the city in the center. The space between the 1,500 foot line and the 3,000 foot line will be their open land around their cities. So what we see here is what God's plan is as regards land and territory for the tribe of Levi. Now in the first couple chapters of Numbers, we're not, we'll not go there tonight, you can read it on your own. We find that a census was taken of Israel early on, a few months after leaving Egypt. And what we find is that there were actually two censuses taken. Right? One only for the tribe of Levi and another for the twelve Israelite tribes. Later we find that the reason for this is that God is effectively removing Levi from Israel and making them a special group of people whose sole job is to be in service to Yehovah for the sake of Israel. Now just so you get the picture, the tribe of Levi at this moment is no longer seen as part of Israel. They are now a special tribe set apart for a divine purpose. Therefore, the Levites are not going to get a named territory all of their own, like all the other 12 tribes got, partly because Canaan was exclusively for Israel and Levi was no longer part of regular Israel. Instead, the Levites were going to be given cities and some small amount of open land surrounding these cities that was to be used as pasture land and then cropland as their portion. And these cities of the Levites were to be within each and every of the territories ascribed to each of the twelve tribes of Israel. In fact, the Levites were to be given a total of 48 cities and the land surrounding each. And these cities and land would be for a special purpose and they'd be controlled by the Levites. Now just as a little aside on that, where did these cities come from? Did they go build these 48 cities? No. These were 48 of the many, many, many cities that they conquered when they entered the land of Canaan. 48 of probably a few hundred cities. So from that moment forward, even though if we add them all up, we can count 13 tribes emanating from Israel, only 12 of them are to be considered as Israel, and only 12 of them have been given territory. One tribe, Levi, has effectively been removed from Israel. See, just as Jacob adopted away Ephraim and Manasseh from Joseph to be his own, God, in essence, adopted away from Israel the tribe of Levi to be his own. Okay, his own tribe of priests unto him. Even though the Levites came from Israel, they're now a special category. So, with the removal of the tribe of Levi, we're back to 12 tribes of Israel with the names of Ephraim and Manasseh essentially taking the place of Levi and Joseph now in this list of Israelite tribes. Two tribes are dropped, Levi and Joseph. Two tribes are added. Ephraim and Manasseh, so it's a zero-sum game. We're right back to 12. Wow, that's kind of complicated, isn't it? A lot of information. But you know, if we have any hope of understanding the prophetic happenings that follow, as well as the prophetic happenings of the end times, many of which, by the way, we are witnessing right now, Okay, we need to get a handle of the tribal structure of Israel, how it evolved, and how it's going to evolve further. Well, we just scratched the surface. 
Okay. In order that I can explain all this further, we need to add another important piece of information. And it is that even though there are 12 tribes of Israel, plus this set-apart priest tribe of Levi, Israel is eventually going to be divided into two distinct groups that the scriptures call houses. Each of the 12 tribes will eventually belong to one or the other of the two houses of Israel. Okay? The two houses, when combined, of course, make up what the Bible calls the whole house of Israel. Now, it's important for us to not only see the difference between the two houses versus the whole house, but also which tribes belong to which house. Okay, let's examine some more scripture. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8. If you've got the uh, complete Jewish Bible, it's page 447. Actually, turn on over to page 448 because we're going to start at verse 11. Isaiah 8, verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 16. For this is what Adonai said to me, speaking with a strong hand, warning me not to live the way this people does. Don't regard as alliance what this people calls alliance. Don't fear what they fear or be awestruck by it. But Adonai Savot, consecrate him. Let him be the object of your fear and awe. He is there to be a sanctuary for both the houses of Israel. He will be a stone to stumble over, a rock obstructing their way, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many of them will stumble and fall, be broken and trapped and captured. Wrap up this document and confine its teaching to those who I have instructed. Hmm. All right. In other words, this is one of these few documents we're going to find that God says there's going to be a few people get it, and they're going to be the ones I decide. So here we see in Isaiah 8, verse 14, the mention of both, obviously, two houses of Israel. While that is the point most germane to our topic, I picked this passage because it also points out that something, something that's happening today in our time that's significant. See, Israel, modern Israel, believes that the source of all their trouble is a conspiracy of men. A conspiracy of nations, of terrorist groups, all against them. And Israel negotiates and deals and argues and fights with these nations and with these terrorists and with these men, the UN, the US, the EU, lots of initials the Palestinians, the terrorists, because Israelis believe that these are the ones to be feared. These are the ones that Israel has to pay attention to and react to, and therefore the ones to which they must turn to gain peace. But in fact, they're wrong. And that's what God is instructing Isaiah to tell the Israelites if they'll listen to him and to tell us. Isaiah is told not to believe as Israel believes, not to fear as Israel fears, nor is he to fear who Israel fears, nor to react as they react. Rather, it is God with whom Israel should sue for peace. It is God who has the might to defeat all those enemies. And once Israel realizes this, 
and gives up their stiff-necked ways of self-dependence, secular humanism, and apostasy, and they turn back to God, then he shall become their sanctuary and settle this long-running dispute once and for all time. But beloved, since as Christians we have an obligation to follow and believe the truth of God, we need to realize something. That the roadmap to peace, that the Oslo Accords, various UN resolutions, treaties, agreements between Israel and the Palestinians, all and all the other plans and conspiracies of men that are going to come and go, these will not decide the future of Israel. These are not the avenues that we as the church should seek or embrace or accept as the way to peace for Israel. And for us to debate the Palestinian-Israeli problem over issues of rights of return and fairness and economic policies and humanitarian concerns and a wall is to do exactly as God commanded us not to do here in Isaiah. Don't think like that. There is one reason and one reason only that Israel can lay full claim to that land unashamedly, unabashedly. And it is the only reason we as believers should declare God gave it to them. And there's only one person and one person alone who's going to solve the dilemma of the Middle East. Yeshua of Nazareth. He's going to solve it. Okay. Neither the consensus nor the compromises of men is going to make for a lasting peace. So let us resolve, all of us together, first, to stand up for Israel, and second, when we're asked why we stand up for Israel, tell all who will hear that it's because God gave them the land as a covenant between he and them forever. No other reason has any bearing at all on this deal. Okay. Let's read a little bit more scripture. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 33. It's the next chapter over from Isaiah. Jeremiah 33, next book rather, over from Isaiah. Jeremiah 33. I'm going to read you verses, just three or four verses here. Jeremiah 33, verses 23 through 26. I want you to go with me here in your Bibles so that you know where to go when somebody asks you these questions. This word of God came to Jeremiah. Haven't you noticed that these people are saying Adonai has rejected the two families he chose? Hence they despise my people and they no longer even look at them as a nation. Here's what Adonai says. If I have not established my covenant with them day and night and the fixed laws for sky and earth, then I will also reject the covenants, or rather the descendants of Jacob and of my servant David, not choosing from his descendants people to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because I will cause their captives to come back and I will show them compassion. Now I chose this particular scripture to demonstrate a couple of things. First, Notice that in verse 24 that God refers to these two families which the Lord chose. What people did the Lord choose? Israel. This two families reference is just a synonym for two houses. The two houses of Israel. Two houses, two families, same thing when you're reading the scriptures. But I also want you to notice the gist of what God is saying here through his prophet Jeremiah. God says, look, the world in general, even including some of the Israelites themselves that have fallen away from the principles and ideals and promises and covenants of Israel, are saying that God has rejected these two families, these two houses of Israel. That is, people are saying 
God has rejected Israel. He's through with them. He's transferring his blessings to other people. And some are even saying that Israel is no longer the Father's special people. And God answers this false assertion emphatically by saying, Not on your best day, Satan. Not on your best day. Israel will always be my chosen. And verily, colorfully, Abba says, If you want to know what it takes, if you want to know when I'll reject Israel, here it is. Look outside. And if day and night no longer exist, and if all the stars and the planets and the galaxies no longer exist, and if there are fixed movements in the heavens, and if the physics of the universe that control these movements no longer exist, then I'll reject my people. But if none of that happens, if all of that doesn't happen, I don't reject my people. Rather, God says at the end of verse 26 concerning the two families, the two houses of Israel, I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. In other words, while because of Israel's mistrust and sin and rebellion, they will indeed pay dear consequences, their fortunes will rise and fall, God's mercy upon them will endure. That he chastises them, that he disciplines them, in no way indicates that he rejects them. Most of us in here have children and grandchildren. When you chastise them and you discipline them, do you reject them? No. You just chastise them and discipline them because you love them. Now hopefully this settles that matter once and for all. Whether or not Israel is still God's chosen people, whether he is through with them or not, and whether the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen. The last time I looked up at the heavens, day and night still existed, the sky was full of stars, and therefore Israel is still and will remain God's chosen people, and he has decided that nothing they can do, no amount of sin and rebellion, no amount of rejection of him is going to change that. Even if there's nothing left but a handful, a remnant of Hebrews, the remnant of Israel, he will keep his promise to them. So let's put some more meat on these bones. Turn now to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. Next book over from Jeremiah. Ezekiel 37. Just for the sake of time, we're just going to read verses 15 through 22 tonight. 15 through 22. Ezekiel 37, if you've got the complete Jewish Bible, is page 691. Ezekiel 37, verse 15. The word of Adonai came to me. You, human being, he was talking to Ezekiel, take one stick and write on it for Judah and for those joined with him among the people of Israel. Now take another stick and write on it for Joseph the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel who's joined with him. Finally bring them together into a single stick so they become one in your hand and when all your people ask you what this means Tell them that Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah and make them a single stick so they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you were to write are to be in your hand as they watch. And then say to them, that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they've gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations. 
and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms. So here we get further understanding and definition of the two houses of Israel. They're identified. Okay? The heads of the two houses are identified as Judah and who else? Ephraim. The Ephraim of the blessing, the cross-handed blessing of Genesis 48. All those hundreds of years earlier. We also see that from the time of Joseph all the way to the time of the return of Israel in the latter days, Ephraim remains as the chief representative of the tribe of Joseph. Next, we see in Ezekiel 37 that God is going to take these two families, these two houses, also at times in the scriptures called two kingdoms of Israel, and make them into one united family, never again to be divided. This is often referred to in the Bible now as the whole house of Israel. And the catalyst and the source of that coming unity will be the coming of Messiah Yeshua. Okay. Well, a good question right about now ought to be, when and how did Israel go from being one united family to a divided family of two houses and two groups in the first place? All right. Well, back to the scriptures and we're going to find out. Turn your Bibles now to Hosea. Next book over. Okay. Then I'll go to Hosea 6. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 712. And we're going to read all of Hosea 6. You ready? Come, let us return to Adonai. For he is torn and he will heal us. He is struck and now he will bind our wounds. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up. And we will live in his presence. Let us know, let us strive to know, Adonai, that he will come as certain as morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rains that water the earth. Ephraim, what should I do to you? Judah, what should I do to you? Because your faithful love is like a morning cloud. It's like dew that disappears quickly. That's why I have cut them to pieces by the prophets. Why I've slaughtered them with the words from my mouth. The judgment on you shines out like light. For what I desire is mercy, not sacrifices. Knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, just like men, have broken the covenant. They have been faithless in dealing with me. Gilead is a city of criminals covered with bloody footprints. Just as a robber bands waits to ambush somebody, so does a gang of priests. They commit murder on the road to Shechem. Their conduct's an outrage. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Whoring is found there in Ephraim. Israel's defiled. For you too, Judah, a harvest will come. That's pretty strong stuff. See, in the book of Hosea, God has decided to judge Ephraim because their behavior has become such an abomination to him. At this point in history, the tribe of Ephraim has brought every tribe of Israel under its own control except for the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and most of the Levites. Okay. In fact, historians would say that at this point in history that Hosea's talking, speaking, Ephraim has to a degree absorbed several of the other Israelite tribes. So when we see Ephraim 
referred to here. It's now speaking of this conglomerate of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel, all of which have been gobbled up by Ephraim. And together, these ten tribes form this one huge super tribe, which the Bible calls the House of Ephraim. Okay, again, why is this ten tribe entity called Ephraim? Because the powerful tribe of Ephraim came to rule over these nine other Israelite tribes. And as we see, as it says in verse 9, their conduct is an outrage to the Lord. Let's read a little bit more in Hosea. We're going to go a little long tonight, so get comfortable. We're going to read Hosea 7 now. We're going to read all of it. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I'm ready to heal Israel, the crimes of Ephraim confront me, along with the wickedness of Shomron, Samaria. For they keep practicing deceit. Thieves break in, bands of robbers raid outside. They never say to themselves that I remember all their evil. Now their own deeds surround them. They're right in front of me. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the leaders with their lies. They are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by the baker who doesn't stoke the fire from kneading time till the dough has risen. On their king's special day, the leaders inflame him with wine and he joins hands with these scorners who ready themselves like an oven while they wait for their chance. Their baker sleeps through the night, then in the morning it bursts into flame. They're all as hot as an oven, and they devour their judges. All their kings have fallen, not one of them calls out to me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim has become a half-baked cake. Foreigners have eaten up his strength, but he doesn't even know it. Yes, gray hairs appear on him here and there, but he doesn't even know it. Yes, the pride of Israel testifies in his face, but in spite of all this, they haven't returned to Adonai their God or even sought him. Ephraim behaves like a silly, foolish dove, going to Egypt, then to Asher for help. Even as they go, I will spread my net over them, I will Bring them down like birds from the sky. I will discipline them as their assembly was told. Oh, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they've wronged me. Am I supposed to redeem them when they've spoken lies against me? They've not cried out to me from their hearts, even though they wail on their beds. They assemble themselves for grain and wine, yet they turn away from me. It was I who trained and strengthened their arms, yet they plot evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like an unreliable bow. Their leaders will die by the sword because of their angry talk. They will become a laughingstock, even in the land of Egypt. Now, when this prophetic scripture was written, Ephraim and Judah had become two separate nations. These nations are also referred to in the Bible, again, as houses and families. In this context, the two nations, the two kingdoms, the two houses, two families, all mean the same thing. It's all referring to the same thing. The tribes had been split. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin essentially formed this kingdom of Judah, and all the other tribes essentially formed the kingdom of Ephraim, or as our Bibles will often call it, Israel. It's confusing. Remember, the Levites are in a special category. They're not counted among these 12 tribes, and therefore they're not part, at this moment in the history of late, at least, of the, two, of the 12, of two houses of Israel. Now, how did this split in Israel into two kingdoms occur? You see, what happened was that after King Solomon died, 925 BC roughly, the nation of Israel split, uh, split due to a horrible civil war. Okay? As a result of that split, 
although the people of both kingdoms still called themselves Israelites. One can imagine, right? Twelve tribes of Israel. Only one of the two kingdoms continued to call itself Israel. And that was the kingdom that came eventually to be known as Ephraim. The kingdom of Judah, not long after that civil war, stopped calling itself Israel and simply called itself Judah. Okay? Now, just like in our American Civil War, where our nation was temporarily divided, though people on both sides still called themselves Americans, one side called where they lived the Union and the other the Confederacy. Same principle as what happened in Israel. Now, soon, though, this northern kingdom, these ten tribes, dominated by Ephraim, even stopped calling itself Israel and instead began to call itself Ephraim. So just like we have to understand that Jacob has his name changed to Israel and we'll see the Bible go along and just switch back and forth. Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel. But we have to know it's talking about the same person. It's the same idea when the Bible speaks of the house or the kingdom of Ephraim or the house or the kingdom of Israel, it's speaking of the same place. But, I told you this would get complicated, this only applies to the time after the death of Solomon and after the civil war which split the nation into two kingdoms. That's when that dynamic happens. So when we get into that period of time in the Bible, and a lot of the Bible is spent in that period of time, okay? in other words, post-Civil War, post-Solomon, okay? we've got to watch the context of the prophet's writings very carefully because they'll switch back and forth from calling that northern kingdom of those ten tribes Ephraim and at other times Israel. They'll just switch back and forth. Okay? But when they refer to the kingdom of Ephraim and the, and the kingdom of Israel after the Civil War, in what, is in, what is not included in that is the kingdom of Judah. That's a whole separate issue. Okay? Because it's now seen as a separate entity. In fact, the kingdom of Judah is dealt with quite separately by God. Next week, we'll look a little closer into just what eventually happened to the kingdom of Ephraim and why it's so relevant now to our time. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.